Hey, good morning, everyone. We can keep the organ going, Ancha. Just, I feel, I feel a, a blessing coming on. Um, I, uh, my name is Matthew. I'm the pastor here at uh, the lead pastor here at Emmanuel, and it's really good to be in God's house with you today. Welcome to church. I have a couple of uh, quick sort of family business things, and then we'll jump into the text. Um, but I wanted to take a minute and talk about um, our COVID policy and our measures around safety and things like that. Because um, we haven't in a long time. We haven't talked about this in a while. Um, meanwhile, a lot has changed since the last time we talked about this. Um, the city of Atlanta lifted their mandatory mask uh, mandate on indoor spaces. Vaccinations have uh, become available to all people five and older and boosters to all adults 18 and older. Uh, you may be aware our sister church, Trinity Westside, uh, about a month ago, they lifted masks. Uh, they made masks optional in their services. And so there's been a lot of changes, and, um, and yet I know a lot of us in here feel way safer because we're all wearing masks right now. Uh, and there's a lot of people that haven't come back to church yet because they still feel un uncertain about, um, about these things. And, and meanwhile, there are also people in here who feel like, why are we still wearing this? Doesn't everyone have vaccinations? Don't we live in Decatur? Aren't, like, isn't this like the safest place on earth? And it might be, uh, as a matter of fact. But the reality is, is that we're we're, um, we, we find ourselves in this place where we're trying to do the best we can to keep people, to get, find this middle way where people feel safe, where we are taking necessary precautions. Um, and so here's what, uh, here's what the update is. It's not a very exciting update. The update is that nothing's changing right now, um, but, but that uh, some people on the leadership team, myself and a couple others, will be talking with a panel of doctors and epidemiologists uh, to make some changes around how do we uh, structure neighborhood group gatherings? What do we uh, think is best for our worship gatherings and our classes? There's no like pending, like guaranteed changes, especially because if you get the New York Times Daily, you saw that the headline today was Omicron thrust the world back into uncertainty. It's like, yes, this is the world we're living in. So we're trying to figure out how do we live with this as like a part of our life uh, and yet, how do we continue to make sure that the most vulnerable among us are safe and that we're doing everything we can to love our neighbor? So, all that to say, everything is static from now through the end of the year. We're going to have, you know, masks, mandatory, kids outside, and so on. Um, but uh, as we just continue to look at the data and talk to people who know what the data means, and I'm not one of them, um, we will uh, have updates for you soon. And I just want to thank you so much for rolling with us in this because this has been... Is everyone else as tired of this as I am? And so the, the constant have to reassessing and what it, it's like, it, it, can, it can make you dizzy. So thank you just for your flexibility. There are a lot of pastors, and I'll just say this sort of candidly, this isn't in my notes, there's a lot of pastors that get a lot of, a, a lot of emails from a lot of people every single week that are angry about this, and y'all have been so supportive, and even the people who have reached out have been so gracious and supportive and um, it's like the best place to minister is this, is this city. And so thank you all for the way you have rolled with us in this, and we're very deeply grateful. I want to talk about Christmas Eve services, though. We had thought initially by making our Christmas Eve service, our family service outside, that we were doing three things. One, there would be no cap on attendance because you can have as many people as you want in a parking lot. We can have like 100 more folks out there than we can have in here. Two, we thought uh, by putting it outside, it would make it possible for our choir of 25 folks to sing without masks, and that felt good. Uh, and third, we thought that by doing it, it was like the safest possible environment for people to come. 
Um, but what we didn't consider when we made those plans was that our Christmas Eve family service tends to be times where whole extended families come together. It's usually the most attended or some of the most attended services uh, of the year for our church. And simultaneously, by making... Um, by, by trying to extend hospitality in one direction, we were actually being less hospitable in other directions. And some of you raised your hand and told us, hey, this is what this feels like to us. And I just want to say, like, thank you. We are, uh, we're listening. And so um, this, is what we, uh, this is what we have decided. We have moved um, all services indoors for Christmas Eve. We have added a second family service so that there'll be plenty of space for everyone who wants to attend. We're still asking all of you to um, sign up to register to come so we can make sure that there's not too many people at one time. Uh, we're going to have child care for kids who are four and under in the classrooms, and everyone else is going to be in here together. So our family services are now at 4 and 5.30, and then we have a traditional service at 7.30. And the only real difference between the family service and the traditional service is that they're just geared a little bit more towards kid inclusivity. So it'll be a little shorter, the message will be a little bit more geared towards younger people, but it's Christmas carols, candles, at all of them. So you don't have to be like, I want candles, but I want to come to four. You can come at four and hold a candle. It'll be great. We love creating fire hazards every year together. So um, that's going to be this Christmas Eve, 4, uh, 5.30, and 7.30. And we won't be at the mercy of Mother Nature, who you may remember last year gave us a polar vortex and nearly gave Mike a Dalton frostbite as a Christmas present. Um, so this year we'll, just, we'll be inside and we'll be warm and safe and masked. All right. That's it. That's business. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along, we're in Luke chapter 3, Luke 3, and I'm going to read the first six verses of this, and then we'll pray and we'll jump into what God has for us this morning. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Anna and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went out into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this moment, and we say, come and speak. Come and show us what it means for us to be an Advent people, a people living in exile. Come and show us what it means to make the rough places smooth and the crooked places straight in our own hearts and lives so that you can come. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jenny last week set up our Advent season for us and gave us a word to sort of mark what we're going to be talking about, and that is exile. And if you haven't listened to Jenny's sermon last week, I really can't commend it enough. Please go listen to it. It's wonderful, and I've thought about it all week long. It's just brilliant, and I'm so blessed to get to serve alongside her. Um, because she created such an evocative image of what it means for us to live as exiles. An exile, of course, is a person who has been displaced or who finds himself in a place that's not their home. It's a space that's like, it's not, it's not, it doesn't have the comforts of home. It's missing some of the, the, the familiarity. It feels like it's just slightly off. It may be very close, but it's, it's not where you would choose to be. 
Simply put, exile is when we are living in a season with an unspecified end date, waiting for something to give, waiting for some kind of rescue. And Advent, in that sense, is a time where we lean into this idea that all of life is, in a sense, exile. Now, that may not resonate with you, especially because probably all of you have chosen to live where you live. All of you do find yourself in, in dwellings that you chose and and, and so on. And yet what the Bible says again and again in the New Testament especially is that God's people should understand themselves, and that's you by the way, as living in a perpetual state of exile, meaning that we're not quite home yet. We're in the already but not yet. And Advent's a time where we just lean into that, where we just take that thought seriously. It's like, it's almost as if Advent is the invitation from the church that says, hey, that thing that you feel the whole year, let's really lean into that feeling for the next uh, four weeks before Christmas. Fleming Rutledge, uh, the Episcopalian um, pastor and, th- and theologian, she writes in her beautiful book, Advent, to practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache, our deep wordless desire for things to be made right and the incompleteness we find in the meantime. She goes on to say, to rush into Christmas without first taking time to collectively acknowledge the sorrow in the world and in our own lives seems like, and this is a pretty condemning word, an inebriated and overstuffed practice in denial, which is how a lot of us keep Christmas. Um, And it starts like in October now. An inebriated and overstuffed practice in denial. But it's not, it's not meant to be this sort of like futile, like I'm just trying to be sad for no reason. It's sadness because there's a sunrise coming, like there's a certainty. Christmas is definitely on the way, and not just December 25th, but Christ is coming. It's certain, and so we can lean into the ache, knowing that the ache won't swallow us whole. It's not the final word. The final word is good. In fact, as Wendell Berry says, this is this beautiful way of saying it, it gets darker and darker, and then Jesus is born. And that's what Advent is. It's just that we just lean it, it gets darker and darker, and we're in the darkness, but then one day Jesus is born. So today we meet who is the star of the Advent season every year, the saint of Advent, John the Baptist. You might be surprised if you're new to the liturgical calendar to see this wild-eyed, crazy guy merging on the scene of Advent rather than see, I don't know, a baby crawl across the stage. That would make more sense. Or a sheep, maybe a shepherd, or some sort of quaint little thing, a manger. And yet, Advent every year points us to this guy right here. That's a real picture of him. And this is, he was, he was a wild guy. He lived in the wilderness. He ate bugs. He, he, was, he was sort of, uh, he, he was rough around the edges, to say it kindly. And, and this, is who, this is who our companion is every year for Advent. And the reason it's so important is because he is the one for whom his whole life was about expectation of the coming sunrise. His whole life was an Advent sermon. And so he's our friend and companion on this road every year. We, we spend this time with John because John is a reminder that what is coming on the other side of, of Christmas is, is deeply good and we need to be getting ready for it. Luke, at the beginning of chapter 3, and this is brilliant on his part, he lists like six different powerful rulers, Roman emperor and Pontius Pilate, Herod, the high priest, the rulers of the Galilee and all around. And then as a foil to these six, seven powerful people, he gives John, that guy, the weird guy, the crazy person out in the wilderness eating locusts. He's the one through whom the word of God is now going to come into the world. It's not through the powerful aristocracy. Actually, God's word is going to come through this man. And in that sense, it's just a reminder, and Advent is sort of a yearly reminder of this, the kingdom of God comes subversively. 
It doesn't, come, it doesn't even come in Jerusalem, let alone in Rome. It comes in Bethlehem. It comes through a peasant couple. It comes in obscurity. The kingdom of God grows subversively. I bet right now there are ways in which God's kingdom is growing in your life that don't feel mainstream. They feel off to the sides and the fringes. There's something subversive about the way God chooses to move out into the world. It's small. It's simple. So what is John's word for us? Ultimately, John's word to his people and to us is a word of comfort, comfort to exiled people. Luke introduces John uh, by saying this is the fulfillment of the words of Isaiah the prophet. Now, Isaiah is a really thick book in your Old Testament. It's one of the great prophets, the major prophets, and probably the most popular of the major prophets because Jeremiah is sad and Ezekiel is weird. But if you read Isaiah, and it's true, that's a good summary. If you, if you, if you read Isaiah, you will find that there's, there almost seems to be this disruption that happens right around chapter 40. In fact, scholars now tell us that we, we believe that uh, Isaiah was actually written by at least two, maybe three different guys separated by 150 to 200 years. And don't let that make you feel like you should burn your Bibles. It's just this is actually how like the long editorial process of Bible writing took place in real time. So Isaiah the prophet, the real guy, he lived pre-exilic uh, Judea. He was there, and he wrote chapters 1 to 39. He didn't realize he was writing chapters 1 to 39. He was just being a faithful prophet in his time and saying, exile is coming, punishment is coming. And then suddenly, in chapter 40, it's like the shift, uh, the perspective shifts. It's no longer future-looking, it's now past-looking. It's like, this is what God has done now. It's 150 years in the future. And now what we're looking at is that God is going to restore the people whom he has sent away into exile. In fact, uh, chapter 40 begins with these words. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. What? That she has served her term. It's past tense. Everything up before you, you're going to serve your term. She has served her term. Her penalty is paid. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all our sins. And so comfort, comfort, says your God. And then Isaiah goes on in the very next in the very next sentence to say, a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, which is, of course, what Luke says is about John the Baptist. And so the word that John has for the people, even though as we listen to it, at times it might feel like you're a very negative person, uh, the word is ultimately a word of comfort because um, exile has already been served. People have already paid for their sins, like the punishment is past, and what is coming is good news. What John's call to us, though, is that while we are in the midst of waiting for rescue, waiting for the good news to come, the waiting is, is active and not passive. Returning from exile uh, is approaching, but what we do in the middle is we are actively engaged in waiting. Um, we're making it possible for God to get to us. When he talks about sort of clearing away in the wilderness, what he's, it's the picture of like a, like a royal caravan of like a king who's trying to get to a city but can't get through this like narrow pass because there's boulders and whatever in the way. Um, maybe a bit more practically, just think about like, um, like, a like an ambulance or a fire truck trying to get down the street of your neighborhood to, to, to save someone's life, but there's like um, power lines and trees blocking the road. Like that's the image that Isaiah is giving us. Like there's, there's rescue coming, so we need to make sure that the path is clear so that rescue can come, um, can come to us. And what John is saying in that, what Isaiah is saying in that, is that the, 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 the part that you and I are in right now, this like waiting space, this advent space, because 
this is a time for us to be actively engaged, not passively disengaged, which is actually, um, which is just a good word for us, that actually the, act, the, the waiting is meant to be something that we're actively doing um, with one another. In Psalm 137, um, it's just really beautiful, and um, it's a really beautiful, and it also ends very, very strong. Um, Psalm 137, it, it goes like this. It says, by the waters of Babylon, so this is now a psalm written by exiled people. By the waters of Babylon, we hung up our harps and we wept. Meanwhile, our captors say to us, sing us the songs of Zion. And then the psalmist goes on to say, how can I sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land? So what is the tendency when you find yourself in exile? It's to hang up your harps and to weep. It's to, it's to feel all the feels and to be sad and to be hopeless. And that's where a lot of us may be, may be this morning. Like that's where maybe some of you right now feel like there's like, what is the point of this necessarily? How can I sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land? How can I hold on to hope when everything feels so bleak and so dark? But can I tell you what they did do eventually in Babylon? They picked up their harps and they sang the songs of Zion. That's how they maintained their identity. This is what Jenny talked about last week. Of all the people who got displaced during, during this period of time, by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, by the Persians, by the Romans, by the Greeks, of all the people who were conquered, the Jewish people maintained strong and their identity is with us to this day. Why? Because even in exile, they sang the songs of Zion. They didn't give up on what was most true. And here, here's what I wanted to say. Um, to, to you all, to, to you at home, uh, to those of you who are listening on a podcast right now, and I want to say this with all of the tenderness in my heart and, all, and, uh, and like nothing but grace. Um, in March of 2020, when everyone had to lock down, um, like there was sort of, I mean, obviously, like seismic just, just change and, and all sorts of, of, of brokenness. On the other side of it, when people began to reemerge and doors were reopened and the church doors reopened and so on, uh, just across the country, this has been uh, covered in Christianity Today and others, um, across the country, more than a third of all church-going people were not coming back to church. It's true in our church. It's true in every church that I know the leaders of. Like More than a third of people who were a part of the church are no longer. In fact, what happened in our church is kind of interesting. Um, about 100 people joined us during the lockdown who didn't know anything beforehand, and about 200 people who used to be like main people we haven't seen ever since. And I'm not saying that with any spirit of condemnation. I'm just saying like that's just reality. And I want, I want you to hear this from me because I'm, I'm begging you. Like This is not, has nothing to do with my ego like zero. And it has nothing to do with numbers. It has nothing to do with like wanting it to be packed in here. Nothing like that. It's this. Like we got worn out. A lot of us are dispirited. There's a lot of reasons people haven't come back to church. The number one reason, of course, being safety concerns. And that can be really legitimate. I think the second reason people haven't returned is disillusionment with evangelicalism in general. And that is well-founded and something we should be talking about. I think deconstruction is necessary and good, and we should all be engaging in it. In fact, I heard uh, in the Mars Hill podcast yesterday, um, who was one of the persons, I can't remember his name, I didn't put it in my notes, but anyway, he's a major voice for evangelicalism. He says, like, every Christian should be deconstructing. If we're not deconstructing, then our, then our faith becomes a culture, and that culture becomes an idol. Deconstruction is not a bad thing, but it's kept a lot of people from coming back to the church, and, and understandably. But some people haven't come back to church simply because it's convenient. Some people are watching from home right now because it's, it's convenient. 
And, or, you're, or like you're listening to me on a podcast right now and you're on a run, and I know I'm talking to people in a room right now, but now I'm not talking to you right now. And this is like your new, this is your new church rhythm is you just listen uh, while you go running or while you drive around. I was talking to a friend this week um, as he was cutting my hair. And uh, he, he was saying, uh, he has tons of friends who have said, like, we're not leaving Christianity. We're just not coming back to church anytime soon. We don't see any reason to come back to church. And I just want to say, I totally understand why. It turns out all of our friends and neighbors who have Sunday as a second Saturday are really onto something. It's awesome, right? We all really liked it. It was super great to not have to get the kids out the door to just hang out in our PJs all day for a second day. It was really great. I enjoyed it. We all enjoyed it, probably. Um, but listen, like the way that we live in exile, your soul needs, and we need, the body needs, and our city needs people to pick up their harps and sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land. We need to be defiant in the midst of this. And rather than just give up or let the weariness and the fatigue send us out, and I know that you all are in this room right now, and I don't know who exactly I'm talking to, but whoever you are, I just want to say like, what it means to be active in the waiting is to be engaged and not to give up. To, because, because rescue is coming, but it maybe is a long way off. And the way that we hold on to our identity and our faith and our strength in the midst of it is to continue to sing the songs of our homeland and to not give up on it. It's what stirs faith in me. And when I hear you singing, uh, it stirs faith in me. So, friends, <laughs> thank you. Um, so we, we, need to be, we need to be people who are willing to do that. And if, if, if you're a person who just finds it easier more times than not, to just like, I'm not going to come. Like, I just want to say the church needs you here. I need you here. We need you here. And our city needs us to be a place that's holding on to the light for the rest of us because that's what our role is, to be active in the waiting. And John says, lastly, that part of that active waiting is a leveling of the ground. It's the final thing he says. And we need to understand that leveling the ground in John's thinking is not abstract. He's not just saying, like, try to find the ideological things that are getting in the way. For John, the leveling of the ground was active. It was rooted in justice. It was rooted in wealth and power. He says in the very next verse, those of you who have more should give to those with less, and those of you who have power should use it for the flourishing of those disempowered rather than to preserve your own power. In other words, the call to you and me, the active waiting, is to pick up our harps, to sing our songs, and then to level the ground around us. I, um, which, which is to say, basically, like, and this is something that we're reminded of every year at Christmas, but like the church, there's no like marginalized people group that the church should be indifferent towards, even if they have different beliefs than us. Like what it means to be levelers of the ground, what it means to be people who are using our resources for the sake of others, is to be actively engaged with those who find themselves on the underside of power or of wealth. And I've received an email this week from um, a ministry or an organization called Equip. They're in Nashville. They're friends of ours. We love them a whole lot. They're hopefully going to come in 2022 and do some work with us on sexual discipleship because it's what they do with churches. They help people have hard conversations about what it means to, to move towards sexual wholeness as a people. Anyway, in this email uh, from Equip, it was a reminder that during Christmas season, as the weather turns cold, 40% of all homeless youth are so because they're LGBTQ. And we tend to, in the church, especially if you're in a conservative church, fall along an ideological line and say, this isn't our problem, and it is our problem. The church should be deeply concerned about this. It's not about necessarily sharing our same beliefs on everything. Like, we should be a people. What it means to level the ground is to make sure that every person who, for whom the table has been taken away, for whom their home has been taken away, like, we become the home. This is what David, I think, means in Psalm 27. He says, my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord has taken me in. Y'all, we are the Lord. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. We're the ones who take in those who've been cast out into the street. 
This is leveling the ground. Another way that the ground is being leveled is by someone in our church, a man named David Roth. He's the director of Memorial Drive Ministries, one of our local partners. It's a refugee uh, ministry in Clarkston. And David, for the next two and a half weeks, he's been, he's been deployed uh, with the International Rescue Committee. He's on a, a U.S. Air Force base right now receiving Afghan evacuees who are fleeing violence in their homeland. And he's actively participating in welcoming them and processing these families so that they can have a soft place to land. This is leveling the ground. This is what Christians do. This is what it means to make a path. Why? Because he says, all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. So when we level the ground, what we're doing is we're making it so that God can come to all of us, not just to like me, but to all of us. When we choose to level the ground, we make it so that all, all flesh can see the salvation of God. One of the ways I think we can level the ground in our church in this season, this is super local, this is super like contextual, is to make sure that people aren't celebrating Christmas alone. I know that, that that may not seem as big of a deal as Afghan evacuees or homeless LGBTQ youth, and, and, and maybe it isn't, and yet it's still deeply important. And there's a lot of people in our church who either because their family live far away or they don't have family to go back to or because they have to work the next day or whatever it is are going to come to Christmas Eve alone, and then they're going to wake up and spend Christmas Day alone. And friends, what it means for us to be the church that is choosing actively as a value to make spiritual family rather than nuclear family the center of our church. And that's not, that's not a, an Emmanuel idea. That's a Jesus idea. When Jesus reset the table of society and said, you are now brothers and sisters to one another because you do the will of my Father, what he's saying is not brothers and sisters, you know, family, nuclear family doesn't matter. He's saying there's something greater now that you all are a part of, that, we're, that we belong to one another. And as people who belong to one another, it's utterly necessary that we have doors that are wide open and tables that have extra chairs because we are family. And so we, shouldn't, we just simply shouldn't be a community where anyone is alone. Like that's, it's, we'll, never, we'll never be able to live into what it means for us to be the people of God together in exile if we are continuing at the end of the day to move into our own homes and close our doors and close our garages and be little isolated silos. Um, so this is super practical, but I just want to say, like, if you have space around a table or you're going to be in town, like, would you let us know? You can go to emmanuelatl.org slash Christmas, and there's a form, and you can just say, like, I have chairs, or I'm going to buy some chairs and make space. I'll, I'll put the extra leaf in the table or whatever it is. I'm going to bring a person in. It's going to be disruptive. Or if you're a person who's like, I don't have anywhere to go, and by the way, that's the way more vulnerable place to be in. So if you would be willing to take an enormous risk and say, I have nowhere to go, and go to that same page and put your name on that list, we'll find a place for you to celebrate Christmas. We have to do this with one another. We have to level the ground. And those of us who have extra relational resources give to those who have fewer relational resources so that God can come to all of us so that all flesh can see the salvation of our God. This is what it means to be Advent people, to be active in our waiting. John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, when John was born, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. He's baptized in the Spirit, essentially, and he begins to prophesy over his son. And this is what he said about his son, and I haven't memorized it. He says, And you, my child, will be called the prophet of the Most High God, for you will go before him, before the Lord, to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. To shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the path of peace. The reason why Advent is both a dark season of grief where we, as Jenny said last week, we grieve the dying. 
We grieve for Diana Shugart. We, we grieve for all those who have lost. Many of us have lost loved ones in the last year. I lost an uncle two weeks ago. Many of us have lost and we're surrounded by death. We grieve the dying, but we tend to the living. Why? Because we believe as certain as the sun will rise tomorrow, that the sunrise will shine on us and guide us in the path of peace. On those shining in darkness. To be a Jesus people means to live in this in-between where what we want is not yet here, but we choose to live in this waiting time as though it is. We choose to hold on to it as though it's certain. Let's end our service by praying this with one voice. Merciful God, who sent your messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and prepare the way for our salvation. Give us grace to heed their warnings and forsake our sins, that we may greet with joy the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. You are loved. We'll see you next week. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.